Hi, I'm Yana Firestone. I've loved having you on my podcasting journey so far. I hope you're enjoying season four and that you've gained something from the stories I've been bringing to you. Now, I've made something just for you. Living through these tumultuous times, we've all had a lot to contend with. We've had to pivot and adapt like never before. But what if we can't? What's stopping us from taking those leaps of faith? In my new book, Embracing Change, I unpack some of the psychological barriers to change using anecdotes from my own personal life and professional experience as a therapist, as well as sharing some of the heartfelt and painful experiences of my well-known guests on the Curious Life podcast. We all have a story and we all have challenges to overcome. Embracing Change is about finding the ways that we can adjust, transition and adapt as smoothly as possible. Embracing Change is available at all good bookstores at Kmart, Big W or online via Booktopia. If you prefer to listen to your books, you can hear me read it to you via audiobook available through Audible. I would love to hear your thoughts. So please let me know what you think on socials at The Curious Life Podcast. And don't forget, as always, to leave a rating or review of the podcast. John Fane is a well-respected lawyer and former ABC broadcaster. And he joins Yana on this episode to talk about a book he was compelled to write after being captivated as a young lawyer by his favourite client, and not just any client either. Apollo and Thelma is a great yarn about the legendary strongman, TV regular and circus star, the mighty Apollo. This conversation is full of as many astonishing stories as John's amazing new book. Untangling a long line of astonishing stories from our distant and recent history that has intercepted his own. You'll be fascinated and remain intrigued when you meet John Fane next. Hello and welcome to season four of the Curious Life podcast. And today I'm joined by John Fain, who many of you will have heard is a renowned broadcaster, writer, thinker, and has written this incredible book, Apollo and Thelma, which I have just absolutely loved, John. It is a magnificent piece of work and I'm thrilled to have you on the show with me today. Well, it's lovely to join you too, Yana, and we should declare up front, shouldn't we? We have a familial connection, the details of which are irrelevant, but it's lovely to be able to be a guest on your show. It's nice to see you in a professional setting instead of personal one for a change. And honestly, it is such an honour to have you on the show. I'm no, a huge leave fan it alone. of you. Oh, come on, John. You're a fantastic icon of broadcasting. And for someone like me to have the opportunity to talk with you is really a thrill and a privilege. So thank you. Well, I don't feel like an icon. I feel like a bloke who gets up every day and tries to make sense of the world just like everybody else does. And when people tell me things like that, I wonder who they're talking about. I kind of look over my shoulders. There's someone else here. So, And I mean that. I'm not just being kind of, you know, humble brag or anything. As, as my former <laughs> colleague and friend, Red Simon, says, you're a very humble man, John. You've got a lot to be humble about. And, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I just get up and do it and try and work it out like everybody else does. Well, that's a really interesting point because one of the things that I noticed, particularly in the first part of your book, was your discussion around imposter syndrome, which so many of us experience. Yep. But we all think is completely unique to us. And that's sort of what you're describing now, like wondering, hang on, what's all this fuss about? It's just me, I'm just John. And I wonder, 30 years down your broadcasting career, does that not go away? Does Is there always a little bit of that lingering in the background? 
There's an implication in your question, Jana, that there's something wrong with imposter syndrome. And I actually dispute that. I think it's useful. I think it's good. I think it's healthy. And almost everybody has it. You know, there's only people like Eddie Maguire who don't seem to be able to entertain self-doubt. I'm not one of those people and I don't actually want to be one of those people. I think it's a trap. And whether they're politicians or media figures or whatever else, it, it's not a desirable state of being. So I use self-doubt. I'm, I am my own harsh, harshest critic. So psychologist in you will start to immediately go, ah, great, there's a thread, let's pull it back. But I think it's good to be your own harshest critic. And that way you're constantly testing yourself, probing, asking, and looking for ways that you, I mean, I, I don't set out to stir up controversy or any of those things, but you're looking for ways to do a better job. Mm. And I find that healthy. I find that useful. I mean, for some people, though, it tips over. Of course, it goes too far and they undermine themselves. And I don't want to be one of those people. And I don't recommend that either. A healthy dose of self-doubt, I think, is useful. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think imposter syndrome has become part of the vernacular in recent times. But I think, as you say, self-doubt has always been there. We've always talked about self-doubt. I remember even as a young psychologist talking to my dad, who, as you know, is a psychiatrist and saying to him, I just sort of feel like people are going to find out that I don't actually have a clue what I'm doing. And he said that we all feel like that. That's, That's completely right. normal. And that was my first sort of taste of, oh, right. Okay. So it's good to be questioning myself, not yeah. think I know everything because as a green professional, which you also talk about in your book, we sort of sometimes have a bit of a youthful arrogance, maybe as a way to put it, where we can sometimes think we know everything. But what struck me in your kind of un reveling of not unraveling, but telling of who you were at that time, there is a lot of self-deprecation and talking about yourself as not really knowing much and figuring well, it out on the go. I yeah. didn't. And yeah. I think a lot of older people, I'm 65, so a lot of older people, they airbrush their own history, they gild the lily, they leave out all the embarrassing things. And I don't think that does anybody any favours at all. I mean, if you, whether it's your own kids or their friends or the next generation or the people who you mentor in professional life and so on, I think it's good to be frank about your failings, your shortcomings and all of those things. And I mean, you know, first of all, I think I'm lucky to be alive. You know, some of the stupid things I did on motorbikes and in cars when I first was able to drive, I mean, it's astonishing. I can't believe that, you know, I survived and sometimes it was just the most capricious wafer thin margin between living and dying on some of the stupid things I used to do. And likewise, I mean, I'd never got into hard drugs. Um, I only ever used marijuana. I tried cocaine, I think once or twice. I think the second time I went, whoa, I don't think this is a good idea. This is amazing. And I can see why people end up thinking they need it. I mean, I was pretty high on life, so I didn't need other things. But I saw friends, people I shared houses with who died from heroin overdoses, friends not as close, but still in my own circle who succumbed. And sadly, uh, as an adult with kids, I've seen some of my kids' friends succumb. And it's, it's ghastly, I think, to have an honest conversation about these things instead of parents pretending, oh, well, we never did those things, which is bullshit, because they did. You know, I, th I think that helps, that frankness, that honesty, instead of the glorified view of your past that really doesn't fool anyone anyway. So yeah, I don't mind making some admissions against interest as the lawyer in me would say. <laughs> I think it's useful, but I also hope it's entertaining for people. 
One of the things that just comes up for me as you're talking is the prank that you pulled when you were being admitted as a lawyer, hiding a joint and all these other kind of documents in in this very, what you would imagine would be a very serious setting. And mm. what really would have happened if they had opened that? Could you have gotten away with that being an April Fool's prank or... Do you think they might have reconsidered <laughs> admitting you? <laughs> <laughs> um, I did several things. I mean, I, I was a, a, a mischievous article clerk, and then when I was getting admitted, I did a few things. First of all, I put a deliberate typing error, spelling error, in my affidavit. So you have to say you swear an affidavit saying here are any criminal convictions you've had, and I had none. Here's any you know disclosures you have to make, and I had none. And so then you say I confirm to the board of examiners and the admissions board that I'm of good fame and character, and I put I'm of good frame and character. <laughs> so I hope I'm the only person ever admitted to be of good frame and character. And you have to brief a barrister to appear in front of the full court to move your admission and move this honourable court that on the certificate of the Board of Examiners and whatever else, I move that Jonathan Eric Fain be admitted as a barrister and solicitor of this honourable court or whatever you say. And the brief is usually two pages, the full name of the person who's being moved and a back sheet, it's called the wraparound, the cover on every brief that every barrister gets, there's a thing called a back sheet. And I also put in about 90 letters from law firms who'd refused or declined to even interview or employ me as an article clerk. I thought that was part of the context of it all and a few other things. And then, yes, I, I put in a, a joint in the middle for uh, the barrister, the lawyer who was moving my admission as a thank you. And I kind of hoped he, he might only open it in court and it would fall onto the floor, which would have been hilarious. But in fact, of course, he, upon receiving the brief, said, why is this so big? Everyone else has got two sheets of paper. Why have I got a hundred? <laughs> and um, I also, instead of using pink ribbon around the outside as barristers do, I put a red thigh garter around the outside. <laughs> and I didn't take the whole thing terribly seriously. I thought it was terribly pompous and self-important. And I guess that was just part of my attitude at the time. And personally, I, I'm not embarrassed telling that story, although so many other lawyers are going, oh my goodness, that's not the time to play a prank. I thought it was the perfect time. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And there's so many anecdotes like that throughout the book. And it would be remiss of me not to mention the main characters of this story who are Apollo and Thelma, which on their own, their stories are magnificent. And yeah. as, as you say on the front cover, a true tall tale, you would think that Half of it, it's like reading a movie script. You can't believe the life that these people led prior to meeting you. But the way that you intertwine your own story of coming up as a young lawyer and how you came to meet Apollo and his three sons, it's just fantastic. And it, well, you would you. think that they're two separate stories, but they weave together just magically. And well, thank you. There's about, I don't know, there's probably five or six stories mm. in here. And Apollo was a, a circus strong man. He was the world's strongest man, the iron-jawed king of strength. And he was a, a regular in the early days of Australian television with Graham Kennedy and Bert Newton. He was a regular performer for charity events and shows. He was always at the Royal Melbourne show and he toured around with tent shows to all the regional and country shows up and down all as far as Queensland and over to South Australia. And they traveled around, they were showies. Um, but he was kind of like a supercharged showy. He was different. And his sister, Thelma, she, after the war, went off with her new husband and they established a trading store that became a pub at this incredibly remote place in the Northern Territory called Top Springs. And that was in the 1950s. I come into it when, as a baby lawyer, Thelma suddenly dies in 1981. And after nearly a year after she was 
found dead uh, very suddenly and unexpectedly. Her family who inherited her pub and the estate were still wondering where's the money, what's holding it all up? And they came into the law firm where I was working and I was given the file to look after. So the book starts, I only met Thelma Hawkes after she died. Her brother, the mighty Apollo, introduced us to tell you their story. I have to tell you some of mine. And so I get to know Apollo, who is this charismatic, enigmatic figure who has three teenage boys who are the beneficiaries of their aunt's estate, but because they're still teenagers, he's their guardian. Mm -hmm. So all my dealings are with him, not with the sons. And I tell Apollo's story, which I found fascinating. He's a remarkable character. I then have to learn Thelma's story and not just for the purposes of the estate, but she just becomes a fascinating figure and an untold story. I mean, a woman running the roughest pub you can imagine in the roughest place, two hours west of Catherine, Mm -hmm. heading to the West Australian border in the middle of the desert on her own for 20 years after her husband left, they fell out over money. And then there's her ex-husband's story, which is an extraordinary yarn about Sid Hawkes, which involves incredible tales of rough and rugged early days in the in the territory. And his whole story is another remarkable interwoven tale. But then we get into all sorts of other things from my work at the ABC. I get to do some things with Frank Hardy, the famous author and communist activist agitator and the man who wrote Power Without Glory, which if people watching this have never read it, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's essential reading. And through interviewing a judge who told a story about Frank Hardy, I then meet Frank Hardy and then he asks me to help him solve some riddles to do with the Power That Glory criminal case that followed, a criminal defamation case, incredibly rare attempt by a very powerful Melbourne business family, the Wrens, to shut down Hardy's publication of Power Without Glory. And then I find myself on stage, Hardy suddenly dies, and I'm on stage at Collingwood Town Hall as the MC of his memorial service with Gough Whitlam crying Mm. on my shoulder as he tells a thousand people in the hall and hundreds of thousands of people listening on the radio through the ABC, how it was Frank Hardy who opened his eyes to Indigenous disadvantage through the work he did with the Gurindji walk-off. So people will recognise the, you know, the Gurindji, the Wave Hill walk-off, Gough Whitlam pouring sand into the hands of an Aboriginal stockman whose name is Vincent Lingiari and the, the Kev Carmody and Paul Kelly song from Little Things, Big Things Grow. That's about the Gurindji walk-off, which was regarded as the the start, the origins of the struggle for land rights. But I then went to revisit what that was all about and discovered, in fact, there's a whole lot more, a story that's never, ever been addressed. The Gurindji petition to the Governor General Yana said, we do this for our dignity, our land and our conditions of work. And that's how it's understood and recognised. But in fact, when you go and look at the documents, when you read the original documents and have a look, there's one other thing that they said they were doing it for. And it's always removed. It's airbrushed out of our history. And that extra thing is, and to protect our women. And there it is in black and white, and it leaps off the page. And I go, hang on, what's that about? And I started reading, and I started asking questions. And the answers to those questions and the materials I read were staggering. And if anything, I had a reputation for anything as a broadcaster, Yana, it was for being fearless and prepared to ask what Tony Abbott once said was the mongrel question. And I thought, well, I can't unsee this. I can't unread these materials. And if I'm at all to live up to my own values, I can't leave this out. Mm-hmm. And the colonisation of Outback Australia was built on rape. And massacre after massacre after massacre, when I researched what was it really about, 
It was about dingo trappers, buffalo hunters, minerals explorers, white settlers, helping themselves to Aboriginal girls and women. And then there would be a reprisal by the Aboriginal men, usually killing them. And then there would be a massacre for revenge for the death of the white men over and over and over again. Now, no high school history teacher was going to stand in front of your class and say, we need to talk about rape. That wasn't going to happen. It still doesn't happen, but we have to have these conversations. They're not in the too hard basket. Canada's done it. New Zealand's done it. Everyone's done it, but not us. We were taught that the best thing for Aboriginal people was to smooth the pillow of a dying race. Do you remember that phrase? It was, it was what we were told was the fate of Indigenous Australians. And that's what I was brought up with. And yet, you know, my father, who you met, who died last year, he was born in 1926 in Wellington, New Zealand, and went to school in the 30s and pre-war, went on to university. He was taught Maori culture and language 100 years ago. We're not doing it now. What is wrong with us? And if we believe in treaty and if we believe in truth-telling, we simply have to face up to these things, be honest about them. And this becomes a part of where Apollo and Thelma takes me. It's such an important message. You're 100% right that New Zealand has been looking after their Indigenous stories so much more respectfully and importantly. um, Honestly and authentically. They're not perfect. Not for a minute are they perfect, but they're way ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Yana and John talk about a part of Australian history you might not be aware of. You surely won't hear it at school and it's a conversation that should start and it should start today. It's right after this. This episode of the Curious Life podcast is brought to you by the sneaky treat company Melbourne. Decadent sweet treats delivered to your door. Let your friends, family or clients know that you're thinking of them with a box of goodies and a personalised note to send along with your gift. TheSneakyTreatCo.com. You know you want to. Was that the impetus then for you to write this book, do you think? No, no, that completely caught me by surprise. Mm. And the way the book unfolds, I start with, I only met Thelma when she died. Mm. Her brother, Mighty Apollo, introduced us. And I started off looking for more about Apollo, more about Thelma and telling their story. And then the the Frank Hardy stuff. Well, I knew all that because I did it. I lived it. And I'd had this idea. I started off with this idea that because Hardy took himself up after the Power That Glory trial, he had writer's block and he couldn't write and he was drinking too much and his wife threw him out of home. And he went off to the Territory because there was a young spinning competition in Darwin where you could win money. And he kind of thought, I've got to get it. I've got to get away. And while he's up there through a series of circuitous coincidences, he was introduced to the only Aboriginal union organiser in Australia, a man called Dexter Daniels, who was working for the AWU, the Australian Workers Union, as their Aboriginal organiser in Darwin, trying to get some union presence through the Aboriginal workers in the Territory. Hardy, being a great communist activist, thought, great, he's my man. And Dexter told him there was this strike by Stockman down at Wave Hill, which was owned by the big multinational tax-avoiding family, the Vesties family, who are the kind of, you know, the the baddies in the story. So Hardy takes himself down there and sort of inserts himself into the Gurindji walk-off and becomes their publicist. And he, of course, has strong connections with people in Sydney and Melbourne in the trade union and movement and the Communist Party and Labor Party and elsewhere. And he then uses those connections and media 
to tell the story to well, the rest of Australia. The Gurindji had been on strike for ages before Hardy came and nothing had happened. But when Hardy came, he became their publicist mm. and turned it around completely. And Whitlam at the funeral, at Hardy's funeral, says it was, it was Hardy who opened our eyes mm. to Indigenous disadvantage. He wrote a book called The Unlucky Australians. And it, it's a very detailed blow-by-blow, day-by-day account of the whole Gurindji campaign. And it, it's astonishing. And it, and it needs to be revisited and reintroduced to a generation of Australians who have either never known or forgotten these stories. Yeah, I'd be very interested to know what is in the curriculum now. It's, I don't know. It's, as you say, barely addressed. And I think there's so much. Well, there are some schools that have made a commitment to this, mm. but it's by no means it's not part universally. I mean, I'm not expecting that mass rape by white men of Aboriginal women is going to be taught in high school suddenly. Yeah. I'm not expecting that for a second, but we do need to have an honest conversation as a nation. We just do urgently. Yeah. Yeah. And so I add my voice. There are many prominent Indigenous leaders who are way out in front, but I just add my voice, my personal experience and my motivation, which is also revealed in the book, which is that our oldest son is a Bundjalung man and Uh, what I have seen and experienced, the racism I have seen him exposed to, the sheer and utter prejudice that's been part of his growing up. I can't bite my tongue anymore. That was an important sort of parallel that you drew. It was sort of like tapping into your own experience in today's world with all of that that you're uncovering from the early years and sort of putting all the pieces together and sharing that with the readers. Because I don't know, I know, you know, you and your other son have written a book together and there's lots of personal stuff in there, but this book feels personal kind of in a different way. Oh, completely. mm. You've suddenly made me think I've never thought of this before, but yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I'm exploiting my two sons. No, No, the other one was a travel book for a trip we did together. And that was like, oh, I don't know what, 12, 13 years ago now we drove, I took long service leave and he took a gap year between uni, school and uni. And together we set off from our front gate, just out this window here. And we, we drove from our front gate to London and it took six months and we wrote a book about it afterwards called From Here to There, which did very, very well. And I pinch myself now that first of all, that we did it, that we did the trip, can't believe it. And secondly, that we managed to actually salvage a book from it because just after I came back and went back to work, there were the Black Saturday bushfires and that became all consuming. And so the publishers who we'd had a contract to write a book and they said, well, come on, you're going to have to actually deliver on this. And I thought, well, the longer I leave it, the more I'll forget. So when I had two weeks off, I wrote that book in two weeks. You are kidding. No. Whoa. I've never told anyone that before. So there you are. Well, I got the scoop. In two yeah. weeks, John. Wow. Yeah. I didn't get out of my tracksuit. <laughs> um, my wife, Jan, went away and I set up in a room and I would just get up at the crack of dawn and write and write and write. Every now and again, I'd stop and, you know, fry an egg or something. And I just worked like a lunatic for mm. two weeks to get it done because I had wow. to. I just had no choice. Unbelievable. As someone yeah. that wrote a book last year, I thought I was under pressure doing it in a few months. Two weeks. Well, you were. That's amazing. Yeah, but two weeks is a whole, it's a, it's a whole other level. Yeah. My goodness. And, and actually Jack and I wrote, so the idea originally was we'd write alternate paragraphs, but chapters, but uh, he was actually still, he stayed on in Europe. And mm-hmm. so he was sending me his chapters and he, I think he wrote, I don't know, half a dozen or something like that. And I did the rest and he just wanted to write the bits he wanted to write. So I said, that's fine. You know, I'll yeah. fill the gaps. And um, he would send me his bits and it's actually 
we're drifting a long way from Apollo and Thelma here, but it was really funny <laughs> when we both submitted our final chapters and he sent me his and I'd just written mine, we both finished with almost the same line without either of us telling the other how we were finishing. Wow. And that was time to go home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Just, I mean, what a beautiful legacy for Jack, his kids, the whole family to have that forever. I mean, that's just a beautiful. Yeah. And Apollo and Thelma is very personal, but on a completely yeah. different plane. And, and for people who are listening to your podcast, it's not doom and gloom and grim and all no. about that stuff. That's one small part. It's one, it's, yeah. it's a chapter yeah. uh, towards the end as I, this is where this has taken me. Yeah. So it starts, I mean, the book covers 40 years Yeah. and all the twists and turns. It's a journey. It's a journey. What struck me as well is the level of detail. I mean, you write all of the angles and all of the stories with such colour and, I mean, it's just you're transported to each time just magically, John. Honestly, the writing is magnificent. Thank you. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's thoroughly entertaining. And as you say, it's not it's not a replacement textbook on Australian history. It's completely engaging from a personal perspective and from the perspective of all of these stories that are interwoven throughout. And the, the level of research and, I guess, reflection that would have been required to write this book. I'm sure you couldn't have done this one in two weeks. How long did this one take to put together? Um, well, the research took about six months. Then I had to write and then my father died, which was horrible. And I stopped and then I started again. And then my mother died, which was also horrible. And then um, I had a deadline and I'd failed to keep to it. And uh, so I just had to dig deep and I had a room down at the Abbotsford Convent, which I rented so I could go away and I could turn off the Wi-Fi. Sometimes I had to, to concentrate. Mm. And I had a lovely view out the window of the air conditioning ducts on the, um, the aged care home next door. So I kind <laughs> of didn't have too many distractions and I just basically forced myself. Anyone who's ever tried to write will know you just have to sit on your ass for hours and hours and hours, mm. stare at the screen, stare at the page and just put it down, work it out. Problems come up where you've made a jump or something doesn't work, it doesn't flow. You just have to fix it. You have to say, okay, that's too big a jump. I've got to explain in between. That's in the wrong place. It actually fits better there and off you go. And you just mm. keep going till you've got something that you think, I mean, it's never finished. You know, yeah. The book's never finished. You just get to the point where you say, well, that's going to have to do. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm delighted people are enjoying it. It's the greatest reward of all. It's absolutely brilliant, John. And I'm not just saying that because I know you. Uh, I really, truly have not been able to put it down. And I highly well, recommend you. it to everybody listening. Go and grab yourself a copy of Apollo and Thelma. And beautiful cover too. They've done an amazing oh, job. Great design. Yeah. captures yeah. it beautifully. So thank you very much, Jan. I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Before you go, John, where can people find you? What's the best place to follow? Find me? Yeah. Where, where can uh, people probably- follow you and... Hear what you're up to. In, in the shed underneath an old car, probably <laughs> with some oil dripping down on my cheek here and my glasses getting smudged. Yeah. No, I'm not hard to find. You can find me probably far too easily, actually. But no, it's not hard. And the book's everywhere. Beautiful. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. We would love it if you left us a rating for this episode. 
and catch up with Yana for more inspiration and info on how to get to the stories that tap into your passion on Instagram and Facebook at The Curious Life Podcast. And if you're looking for a fabulous podcast editor or producer, use ours. Julie Reynolds will turn your audio lemons into audio lemonade. Check out audiolemonade.com.au.